Please keep Revelation 13 open as we come to study it this evening. Uh, we're thinking uh, this evening just simply about these, uh, the, the, three, the three main characters of this chapter, the dragon and the beasts, the dragon and the beasts. On the 1st of February 2021, uh, King Keenan Wei, a fitness instructor in Myanmar's capital city of Ne Puy Tau, I might not be pronouncing any of that correctly, but a Malaysian fitness instructor, she went out onto a city street to record her latest exercise video. Uh, she regularly filmed herself on the streets with traffic and pedestrians and people going about their daily lives behind her. But on this particular day, uh, her video captured a very different backdrop. Uh, standing beside a road that led to Myanmar's National Parliament buildings, uh, the fitness instructor inadvertently filmed a military coup as it unfolded behind her. Uh, you can watch the video back on YouTube and you'll see that as this woman is shouting out instructions to the camera and stretching and running in her uh, sports gear, behind her there are military vehicles with the sirens going, racing towards the parliament buildings. There are machine guns, there are soldiers, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And as you watch this surreal video, you think to yourself, how did this person not realise what was going on around her? And yet, friends, there's a danger for us as Christians that we would make that same mistake, spiritually speaking. That we would concern ourselves with our busy lives and our interesting distractions of entertainment and sport or the ups and downs of family life, while all around us a spiritual war is raging. We saw last week, as I said, how Revelation 12 gives us the story of the woman, the dragon and the child. And we saw as that story came to an end that Satan is still intent on hunting down the woman, the church, and uh, going after her for as long as he can until Christ returns. And here in chapter 13, uh, Revelation goes into more detail about how it is that Satan is trying to do that. And it gives us the picture of Satan attacking the church through two beasts. Two beasts. I should say at the outset, this is not an easy chapter to understand. Um, we're in the heart of Revelation now, just passing the halfway point. Uh, and these are some of the most challenging passages of the whole book. And I simply can't go in to cover every single detail of this chapter this evening. We're taking something of a broad brush approach. Uh, but as we study this chapter, friends, we need to keep in mind again the main purpose of Revelation, which is to reassure the followers of the Lamb that we will be victorious. That's always the main purpose to keep in mind with this book, that our Lamb, the Lord Jesus, has won our war already and the time is running out for the devil and his minions. Nonetheless, Revelation 13 warns us very clearly about the power and danger that the devil still poses against us. So we think, first of all, this evening, we're going to think simply about the first beast, then the second beast, and then the failure of the beasts. And we'll spend much more time on the first two points than on the last. Uh, so we think, first of all, this evening about the first beast in chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. And the first thing to notice about this first beast is that Satan counterfeits the work of the Lamb. Through, this, through these beasts, and particularly the first beast, Satan counterfeits the work of the Lamb. 
Chapter 13, verse 1 tells us that the first beast rises out of the sea. And both literally and metaphorically, as I mentioned earlier with Psalm 74, all through the Bible, that the sea is something that God's people feared. It symbolized threat and danger. And even for non-Jewish people in John's day, the sea was a picture for them of everything foreign and unknown and threatening. Remember the Revelation originally was written to those seven churches, or probably to all the churches in Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And this is how the residents of Asia Minor thought of the sea. They thought of it as uh, symbolizing threat and foreign invasion. And so notice here this beast that comes out of the sea, verse 1. It has ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. That's very similar to to the way that the dragon was described back in chapter 12 and verse 3. And the reason that it's such a similar description is given to us in verse 2. Look at verse 2. To it, to the first beast, the dragon gave its power and its throne and its great authority. So Satan invests in this beast, friends, his power and influence and authority in the earth. Satan is at work in this beast. He is using this beast to attack the church of Jesus Christ. Just look at verse 5. Verse 5. It was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. 42 months is the same as 1,260 days, which was the number in chapter 12. And again, it's the symbolic number For the whole span of time between the first and second comings of Jesus. And so that's the time in which this beast has to operate. Same as the the dragon that we saw last week. The time between the first and second comings of Jesus. Notice then how this beast deceives people into worshipping it. Verse 3. One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound. But its mortal wound was healed. And the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. And this is why I say that Satan here counterfeits the work of the lamb. Because the lamb is described in a very similar way to this back in Revelation 5 verse 6. Uh, Jesus is pictured in Revelation chapter 5 as the lamb in heaven standing as though it had been slain. And so the lamb in heaven has a mortal wound. Uh, a picture for us that Jesus Christ died and yet he has risen again. He is overcome his mortal wound he is slain but standing and similarly here this beast though mortally wounded in some way is still alive it keeps on going down through the generations satan imitating their friends and counterfeiting the work of the lamb and people are attracted to this beast and People marvel at it and people are taken in by it. Verse 8 says, those who dwell on the earth will worship it. And quite often in Revelation, that description, those who dwell on the earth, that's a, that's a way of referring to all unbelievers. Those who dwell on the earth. It's also important to notice that this beast uh, blasphemes the name of God. Uh, it, says, uh, it says there in verse 5, It was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And yet people marvel at the beast and people worship the beast. 
Now, of course, we need to be asking ourselves, who or what does this beast symbolize? This is our interpretation of Revelation, that it's symbolic language. And so we ask ourselves, what does this beast symbolize? And the vast majority of preachers and commentators take this beast as a symbol of worldly governments and influential worldly figures who work against Christ and his church. Worldly governments or powerful worldly figures who are against Christ and his church. Or to put it another way, friends, this first beast is a symbol of antichrist. It's a word we find used elsewhere in scripture. Antichrist, simply meaning one who is against Christ. What Revelation is teaching us here, friends, is that Satan will use and is using the power of worldly authority figures to deceive people into following them or following him instead of following the Lamb. And this doesn't mean that we need to be looking out for people who are uh, Satan worshippers. Of course, there are a very small number of people who literally do call themselves uh, Satan worshippers, very dark and twisted way of, of thinking and acting. Uh, but we're not necessarily just thinking of them. Satan doesn't need people to be explicitly worshipping him as long as they're not worshipping God, not worshipping in the name of the Lamb. And so as long as people are deceived into following some figure, following some ideology, following some other religion, Satan will be happy and content. And he often uses the power of people in high office or in, in, in uh, powerful political positions to achieve this. By the end of the first century AD, when, roughly when we believe the book of Revelation was written, uh, worship of Roman emperors was not only practiced, it was state-sponsored. Your guild, your town, your community would get government funding uh, to encourage and to sponsor worship of the emperor. You didn't have to stop worshipping your own god or gods, but you were just encouraged to also worship the Roman emperor as a god. And many of the Roman emperors began uh, describing themselves in blasphemous ways, saying things like Caesar is Lord or Caesar is the saviour of the world. That was one of the shouts that would go up when a Caesar visited a city in his empire. Caesar is the saviour of the world. And so friends, what John and his friends experienced in their day at the hands of Rome, we can expect the church to face at various times to varying degrees all through these last days until Jesus returns. Pressure, sometimes state-sponsored pressure, to conform to the ways of the world and to the beliefs of the world. Listen to what John writes in his first epistle, 1 John 2, verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, <clears throat> it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore we know it is the last hour. We're already in the last days. We know that because there are so many figures who are anti-Christ, against Christ. And some of them become very powerful and very influential. The Roman Catholic Church, for example, had almost a stranglehold on Europe, politically and religiously speaking, in the days leading up to the Reformation. Uh, to this day, the Pope continues to claim for himself 
blasphemous titles, the vicar of Christ and so forth. He claims to speak infallibly. And so he's saying that he has equal authority with the written word of God itself. That's antichrist. Takes other forms as well. Nazi Germany was conceived in the mind of Adolf Hitler as he proclaimed himself the saviour of Germany and the one who would lead them into a glorious Third Reich. We could go on and on, friends. Many different examples, varying degree to varying amounts of power and influence. But the point is that the spirit of Antichrist rears its head. It's it's the head of the beast, and it will keep coming all through these last days. It's. It's Satan counterfeiting the saving work of Christ, claiming that a political leader will save us or a battlefield victory will save us, the kind that Putin is pushing for at the moment, or or an ideology will save us, that if we would just get more progressive and more inclusive, that we would progress and evolve and find our joy as a society. The beast is mortally wounded, defeated by the death and resurrection of Jesus. But he keeps rearing his ugly head until Jesus comes back. And it keeps coming in different forms. That's why uh, these various faces of the beast are described here. Um, it says he had the, uh, the beast that he saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's. Monstrous. Reappearing in different forms all throughout history. So in this first beast, Satan counterfeits the work of the lamb. And also through the work of this beast, Satan is permitted to conquer the people of the Lamb. Look at verse 2. Verse 2 again tells us that this beast was like a leopard and like a bear and like a lion, fearsome. It's emphasizing the point that this beast is savage in its dealings with the church, friends. Savage in its dealings with the church. Look at verse 7. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language. The beast is allowed to conquer the saints. In other words, it's saying many Christians will be persecuted to the point of death. It will seem to the world that they've been utterly destroyed because their lives have been taken. And again, of course, church history and even the present experience of the church in many parts of the world... Proves revelation to be true. Our own spiritual forefathers, the Covenanters, experienced this during the killing times in Scotland. Targeted and and, and physically speaking, conquered many of them. uh, Because they took their stand against the blasphemous claims of King Charles II. You think of figures like Richard Cameron or you think of martyrs like the two Margarets. Friends, they took seriously, as many other believers do today in parts of Africa and Asia uh, and, uh, and, and other places, they took seriously the words of Revelation 13, verse 10. If you look at it with me. If anyone is to be taken captive to captivity, he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword, he must be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Those are sobering words, friends, and and we need to reckon with them as believers. What it's saying there is, if you find yourself imprisoned, you find yourself imprisoned. If you see people losing their lives for the sake of Christ, they lose their lives. Remember, of course, that 
Ultimately, their souls go straight to be with the Lord in heaven. Their bodies will rise again in the resurrection. But nonetheless, humanly, physically speaking, they may be, there may be many conquered by the attacks of the beast. And John says at the end of verse 10, here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. Stickability, perseverance is needed in the face of the attacks of the beast. Paul said, I suffer the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He says, I'm willing even to lose my own life knowing that I, am, I will be with Christ. There's something worse that could happen to us, friends, than physically dying. And that would be to die not knowing the Lord Jesus Christ. To die without knowing that he rather than the earthly beasts of secularism or communism or totalitarianism, whatever head of the beast rears itself, to know that rather than any of those powers, it's the power of the Lamb that is the ultimate power in this world. That the Lamb slain but standing is the victor in the end. And that even if we lose our lives here on earth, we go to be with him. Do you know that Lamb? Is he your king? Is there anything you wouldn't be prepared to offer, to sacrifice, to endure for him? If you know the lamb and love the lamb, friends, we must be willing to persevere and endure. And we must be on our guard against the antichrist attitudes and individuals and causes that would twist our thinking and discourage our faith. So in the first piece, we see Satan counterfeiting the work of the lamb and Satan even permitted to conquer the, the, the people of the Lamb in some cases. Then we think about this second beast. And we see in the second beast that Satan counterfeits the worship of the Lamb. Satan counterfeits the worship of the Lamb. Notice how the second beast is described in verse 11. I saw another beast rising out of the earth. So not from the sea, not from the place of threat and and danger, the obvious place, but from the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, but it spoke like a dragon. So the point about this second beast, friends, is that it looks innocent. It looks like a lamb. The way that same description of, uh, that's been used of Jesus all throughout uh, the book of Revelation. But notice verse 11, when it speaks, it speaks like a dragon. And so we're being warned here, friends, against those who might look like innocent figures, preachers, church leaders, good living, well-meaning people. Someone who may even claim to speak in the name of the Lord Jesus himself, and yet his or her words are the twisted, deceiving words of Satan the dragon. And so this second base, friends, represents religious power, but false religious power, which oftentimes joins itself to the kind of political power of the first beast. Look how the two of them really work so closely together. Verse 12, it exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. So these two are working in tandem. They're working very closely together. Religious power wielded by political power at times against the followers of the Lamb. And again, multiple 
examples we could turn to from scripture and from history. You think, for example, of Daniel's three friends, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego back in Daniel chapter 3. And you remember how the political leader of the nation, Nebuchadnezzar, made a religion out of himself and put that big statue in the plain of Shinar and everybody was to bow down to this statue. And Daniel's three friends are the only ones who don't bow down. Political power allied to religious power pressurizing the people of God. And again, that's what we can expect to see happening at various times and in various ways, right up until the return of Christ. You might think, well, why don't people see through this? Uh, Who would fall for this kind of stuff anymore? Well, look at verse 13. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image of the beast. Saying there, friends, that one of the reasons that people will fall for the false claims of political or religious figures is because in some cases they are capable of counterfeit miracles, which prop up their counterfeit worship. I have no doubt that many, at least some of the miracles that they Roman Catholic Church leadership claims to have done over the centuries, I have no doubt at least some of them were genuine. It's just that I don't think it was the power of Christ that enabled them to do it. I think it was the power of the evil one. I have no doubt that the prophet Muhammad really did encounter some supernatural figure that gave him the Quran. I just don't think that supernatural being was sent from heaven, but rather from Satan's abyss. And it's not only through supernatural miracles that people are deceived into following the religions and isms and fads of our world. It's through deceptive but persuasive speech. Again, he looks like a lamb, he speaks like the dragon. And this is perhaps more of what we see in our own context. Not so much those counterfeit miracles, but persuasive and deceptive speech of the kind we thought about this morning. You should be free to love whoever you like. We need to be true. We need to let people be their true selves. Don't be judgmental. Love is love. These are the slogans that increasingly we hear, not just out in the world, but even sometimes in the uh, visible professing church. And friends, when the people inside the church start looking and acting like the people outside the church, you can be sure that the spirit of Antichrist is working in both. The beast of political and cultural power allied to the language and the behavior of false religion. So in this second beast, Satan counterfeits the worship of the lamb. And again, uh, the, the last thing to notice with this second beast, really with both beasts, again, just to emphasize the point, Satan pressurizes the people of the lamb. He pressurizes the people of the lamb. Uh, The result of this alliance of these two beasts, whether it be political or religious, is not only that some believers are slain, verse 15, they lose their lives, but also look at verse 16. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead, so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark 
That is the name of the beast or the number of its name. Now these verses have sparked endless speculation and suggestions about what exactly the mark of the beast is. Um, Some of our fellow Christians who tend to see all of Revelation as literal and only all to happen away off in the future, uh, they tend to think of this mark of the beast as something literal and physical. And anything from credit cards when they first appeared to uh, barcodes being stamped into our skin to vaccinations that insert tracking chips into our blood. All these things have been suggested as perhaps being uh, the mark of the beast. And as much as those things might make for interesting conversation and sell lots of books, I think they're probably nonsensical and not very helpful. We stick with our symbolic interpretation of Revelation. And as we read of the second beast marking out those who belong to him, we need to remember, friends, that the true lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, has also marked out all who belong to him. If you just glance down at Revelation chapter 14 and verse 1. Revelation 14 verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb, And with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And you remember back in chapter 7, we also saw that 144,000. And I suggest to you that that is a symbolic number for all the people of God from all history. And they were sealed. They were sealed. So friends, again, what Christ creates, Satan counterfeits. The lamb has sealed his saints. The beast has marked his followers. Either you are sealed by the lamb or you are marked by the beast. And these marks are not physical. They are spiritual. The word used here for mark is a word that was used in John's time to describe branding cattle. And in some cases branding slaves. To show who owned them. And even today similar things are done to cattle and to sheep. To make sure we all know which farmer owns them. And the forehead is symbolic of your mind. The way that you think. Your right hand is symbolic of your actions. And so we know who is marked by the beast. By how they think and how they act. Are they concerned for the things of God? Do they pay attention to the word of God? Do they prioritize gathering with the people of God? Or are they simply lost in the flood of beliefs and deceptions and distractions and morality of the world? Notice verse 17. No one can buy or sell unless he has the mark. Buying and selling is just there. It's just a picture of everyday life. You can't go about your everyday business uh, unless you have the mark of the beast. And the picture here, friends, is that in some instances, the influence and power of Satan will be so strong that Christians are actually hampered, hindered from going about their everyday activities. Selling a cake, for example, might not be so straightforward if one of your customers comes in demanding that you join with them in celebrating the false religion of perverted sexuality. Getting a job or keeping a job in somewhere like Japan 
might not be straightforward for a Christian because of the work-obsessed culture of that country that expects employees to sacrifice almost all of their time in service of the state and in making the state wealthier and more respected and uh, prosperous in the eyes of the world. And so a Christian has to, has to consider, do I give all my time to that work? Or do I give some time to my family and to my church? Living in particular neighborhoods in parts of India or Pakistan or Nigeria may not be so straightforward for Christians if all around them are those who demand that they go along with their false worship of Buddha or Hinduism or Islam. And they're told that you won't get a job or you won't be allowed to stay in that house peacefully unless you worship our beast. These things, friends, are evidences of the mark of the beast. This is the kind of pressure that Satan will bring upon those who are faithful to the Lamb. And each one of us needs to ask ourselves this evening, which is true of me? Do I have the mark of the beast? Or am I sealed by the blood of the Lamb? Deuteronomy 11 verse 18. God through Moses impressing upon his people the need to be faithful to the word that he has given them. To the the laws and the commandments that he has given them. He says to them in Deuteronomy 11 18. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul. And listen you shall bind them. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand. And they shall be as frontlets between your eyes on your forehead. And to this day, some devout Jews take that literally and they uh, bind in in little uh, compartments, little pieces of the Torah, little extracts of the Torah on their wrists or even around their heads. The point is, friends, are we sealed by Christ and his word? Are Are we marked by love for that word? Is that word in our minds and in our hearts so that the truth of it comes out in the way that we live our lives? How do you think about yourself and about your world and about God? What kind of thoughts most often dominate our minds? What do we think about when we don't have to think about anything in particular? And if we truly belong to Christ, we must be on our guard against the deceptions and pressures and twisted beliefs that Satan will try to entice us into following as long as this world continues. Again, Notice Revelation 13, 18. This calls for wisdom. So two things that are, called, that are required of us as we think about these two beasts, endurance and wisdom. So we've thought about each of these two beasts, how they counterfeit the work of the lamb, the worship of the lamb, how they pressurize the people of the lamb. But thirdly, and uh, honestly, much more briefly, uh, the failure of the beasts the failure of the beasts, and we see this in verse 18. The final verse of the chapter, friends, is designed to assure us that these beasts and Satan are doomed to failure. Look what it says in verse 18. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. And again, lots of speculation, lots of theories surrounding the number 666. 
One particularly popular idea in many generations was to use uh, an ancient system called gematria, which was where you attach a numerical value to every letter of an alphabet. Uh, and so then you figure out the number of someone's name. And so doing that, people suggested Nero Caesar for 666. But as you can imagine, by, by just changing letters here or there or changing languages here or there, you can come up with all kinds of people whose names uh, amount to 666. I don't think John wants us to use Gematria. Notice in verse 18, he doesn't say that the number of the beast in Hebrew is 666 or in Greek is 666. He simply says it is the number of a man. The number of a man. We've taken almost all the other numbers in Revelation symbolically. 144,000, all believers from all time. Uh, 1,260 days, the whole time between the first and second comings of Jesus. And we've also continually noted the use of the number seven, which is a number of perfection and completion. In Revelation 5, verse 6, the Lord Jesus is described for us as a lamb with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. That's telling us that Jesus Christ, as he reigns in heaven, has perfect power and perfect knowledge. And the visions that have unfolded in Revelation have appeared as a series of sevens. Seven letters to seven churches, seven seals on the scroll, seven trumpets, and so forth. So over and over and over again, friends, seven is the number of Christ and his work and his word. Uh, You might say that the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are a trinity of perfect sevens. The beast, however, has a different number, six, six, six. And I think the simplest explanation is this. Six is not seven. Six comes close to seven, but it isn't seven. And in scripture, if if seven is the number of God and his work, six is the number of fallen mankind and his failed rebellion against God. In each of the cycles of visions in Revelation, it's the sixth, the sixth seal or the sixth trumpet or the sixth bowl, as we'll see in chapter 16, that bring judgment on Satan and sinners. And so by describing this beast as having the number of a man, friends, John is saying that this beast is ultimately going to be marked by failure. Yes, Satan, the dragon, is powerful. Yes, he brings a strong deception upon many people so that they worship and serve created things rather than the creator God. Yes, the the beastly powers of Politicians and military dictators and secular thinkers and false prophets are mounted against the saints and may even cost the saints their lives. But in the end, friends, in the end, the dragon, the antichrist, the false prophet are a failed trinity. 666, not 777. And all throughout this chapter, a phrase is repeated over and over again. It was allowed. Verse 5, for example, the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. Verse 7, it was allowed to make war on the saints. Who's allowing 
uh, Satan to do these things? Who is giving him a measure of rope? It's God. God is bringing his judgment upon this world, friends, in the ways and at the times that he sees fit. But in the end, all authority is in the hands of the Lamb. Six will never match seven. Satan will never conquer the Lamb. And he knows that his time is short. The beast is doomed to fail. Maybe you're thinking, well, that's all very interesting, but how does this help me on Monday morning? Well, quite simply, friends, if you're a Christian this evening, this is why Monday morning is worth living. This is how we know not to despair. This is how we find motivation to keep on going. In the face of all the reasons we have for discouragement and frustration and anxiety as Christians in our world today. Revelation has called us to two things this evening. Endurance, verse 10, and wisdom, verse 18. We endure the persecution of the world. We need wisdom not to celebrate what the world celebrates or to worship what the world worships because we know how the story will end. Satan will not win and the Lamb will have all the glory. And so Revelation 13, friends, again, explains our world to us. It explains why people believe awful things and do awful deeds. But it also reminds us that we are sealed, that we belong to the Lamb, that in him we are a perfect seven rather than uh, an imperfect six. And we are more than conquerors. And as Peter says in 2 Peter 3.11 as we close, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Amen.